Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Rating Room. Today we are shining a light on a groundbreaking film that broke barriers and touched hearts. That's right, we are going to re-watch and talk about the Tom Hanks film Philadelphia, so make sure you get your tissues handy, because this is Season 2, Episode 4. Philadelphia is a poignant drama that follows the story of Andrew Beckett, a talented lawyer living with AIDS. When Andrew is unjustly fired from his prestigious law firm, he decides to take legal action against his former employers, accusing them of discrimination. Now, at this point, I should probably say something of a disclaimer, that um, we're going to follow the usual format that we do here on The Rating Room, which we'll get into in just a moment, but this is probably the first time we've really touched on there's some quite sensitive issues, discrimination being amongst them. So apologies if you don't get the usual frivolity and messing about that we would normally give you, but I think there's some important issues that we are going to discuss and we don't want to make light of them um, because of the serious nature of them. But I hope you enjoy our review and take on, on what we've learned from our re-watching of the film. So uh, we'll keep it to our usual format best we can, but... Um, just be mindful that some of the subject matter is going to be quite um, uh, quite difficult to talk about and quite difficult to listen to in some regards. So uh, let's crack on then with our usual first question. Jay, have you seen this film before and what did you remember about it? Thank you, Andy. I've, I've seen this film before and I've probably seen it fewer than five times. So I, I definitely remember watching it at least three four times but I remembered the general plot but I couldn't really remember any particular scene so before me and the wife watched this film she said she's never watched it before and she said what's, what's this one about so I kind of gave her the the general gist of what happened but I couldn't remember any particular bits I did remember it had a sad ending and I obviously remembered the, the main plot but otherwise I didn't really remember many of the details. What about you, Andy? Have you seen this one before? So I've only actually seen this once before, and it was maybe five years ago. I remembered a vague idea of what the story was about, nothing in any detail or anything. And there was also plenty of cast members that I totally forgot were in it as well. So uh, Antonio Banderas being an example of one that just completely slipped my mind that he was part of this film. Um, I remember the opening with the Bruce Springsteen song song is an absolute classic very 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 um, very memorable movie song but um, no real particular scenes or plot points just just that kind of vague notion of what the film was about um, so let's talk about some of the cast members of course we've got to start with Tom Hanks uh, he plays the role of Andrew Beckett and we've got Denzel Washington as Joe Miller there is Jason Robards Jr. as Charles Wheeler. And we've got, obviously, Andy just mentioned Antonio Banderas as Miguel, as Miguel Alvarez. And there's also Mary Steenburgen as Belinda Conine. So the next section is where we talk about the box office. As always, I'm going to kick us off. So the budget for Philadelphia was $26 million. Box office was just over $201 million. And when you adjust it to today's money... That means that adjusted box office is $422.6 million. So not bad. 
in terms of box office performance. So Philadelphia didn't enter the weekend box office straight at number one, but it did reach number one after four weeks and it remained there for two weeks. It did also remain in the top ten for seven weeks in total. So if you look at the films that were out around that time, this will explain why it didn't top the charts for four weeks. In the same week that Philadelphia is released, the top three films were The Pelican Brief, starring Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington, Mrs. Doubtfire, starring Robin Williams, and Sister Act 2, starring Whoopi Goldberg. So that's quite the competition for opening week. That is. I do love Sister Act 2 and Mrs. Doubtfire. So honourable mentions as well for other films in the top ten include Schindler's List, The Piano, and Wayne's World 2. Uh, I don't like Wayne's World films. Impressively, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, Mrs. Doubtfire actually took the top spot again, dislodging Philadelphia, and it reclaimed its throne as the highest-grossing film at the weekend box office charts. Another contributing factor, which, to be fair, is probably the main reason that it took a while to get to number one, Philadelphia had a limited opening for the first three weeks, and originally only opened at four theatres. It was released on the 22nd of December of that year, and maybe due to the topics covered in the film, they didn't want to uh, uh, ruin the seasonal joy that may be being felt uh, around the country. So in this next section, we, we talk about the awards. So the film was nominated for five Academy Awards and won two of these in the Best Actor and Best Original Song categories. Philadelphia actually had two nominations in the Best Original Song category with Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Philadelphia beating Neil Young's Philadelphia. So Andy, quick question. Do you have a preference out of those two? Because I think they, they were both worthy nominations. Uh, both incredible songs, but I've got to go with Springsteen. It's an instant classic for me, that song is. Yeah, definitely, I agree with you. Uh, but, uh, you know, big fan of the Neil Young song as well, although it's not on Spotify. Just uh, just throwing that out there. It's uh, I was listening to the soundtrack earlier today, actually, and um, Neil Young's Philadelphia was greyed out. So, uh, Do you know why? I, I don't know why, no. Are you, you going to tell me? Yeah. I am going to tell you. So I was intrigued. So I I love that fit. I love that song, and I thought I'm going to um, listen to it on Spotify, and I couldn't find it. And I thought, oh, that rings a bell. So I googled it, and it's because he took his back catalogue off of Spotify in protest of um, the podcaster Joe Rogan. I think it is his podcast, the Joe oh, okay, Rogan's yeah, experience. Yeah. So he took it off um, when Joe Rogan got his, what was it, $100 million, you know, exclusive deal with Spotify to bring his podcast over there. And he took it off, basically, um, and he's not put it back on. So some other artists did take their music on, um, take, took their music off of Spotify, um, but he, he's kept it off. Um, so I've been listening to it on YouTube when I've been typing up the, the show notes and various bits. There you go. Educational, as always. I remember the Joe Rogan controversy. I don't remember exactly the details of it, but I think uh, he said or did some things that were were questionable. I'm not going to speculate as to what they are because uh, I don't want any lawsuits flying our way, but um, um, he may or may not have done good or bad things that people disliked or liked. There you go. That, that about covers it. Um <laughs> So, back to the film. Tom Hanks wins his first Academy Award um, for the film Philadelphia, having been unsuccessful in the 1989 Academy Awards for Big. Um, he's one from two at this point in time. Beat performances from Daniel Day-Lewis, Lawrence Fishburne, Anthony Hopkins, and Liam Neeson. So he's in good company in the, that category. Indeed. 
So Streets of Philadelphia was nominated for five Academy Awards and Bruce Springsteen took the award for four of these, winning in the Song of the Year, Best Male Rock Vocal Performance, Best Rock Song and Best Song Written for a Motion Picture or for Television Categories. So he, he pretty well there, isn't he, that song, winning some Grammys and an Oscar. Well deserved too, has to be said. Um, let's get into the film in a little bit more detail. So this was released in 1993. Director was Jonathan Dem, and the soundtrack composed by Howard Shaw. Now, we mentioned a few minutes ago the song Streets of Philadelphia was a big hit at the awards. Uh, the, the album actually featured several artists, including Peter Gabriel, Sade, and Neil Young, plus others. The soundtrack peaked at number 12 in the US Billboard, but did get to number one in the Austrian album charts. There's a trivia fact for you. That could have been in the quiz, couldn't it? That could have been in the quiz, yeah. That would have been quite a difficult question, I think, there, Andy. But interestingly, Andy, Tom Hanks wasn't the first choice to play Andrew Beckett. Daniel Day-Lewis was offered the role, but turned it down. And obviously, you just mentioned that he was one of the nominations for the Best Actor in the Academy Award in the same category as Tom Hanks, but obviously lost out to Hanks. And before Denzel Washington was cast to play Joe Miller, Bill Murray and Robin Williams were both considered, and I think that would be a very different film if you had two and uh, one of the com you know comedic actors playing Denzel Washington's um, lawyer Joe Miller. Can't quite see that one working. Yeah, I'm not sure. You can't really play that for laughs, can you? That kind of role. Um, what I would say is though. I've seen Robin Williams in a couple of serious roles, and he is a, a very good serious actor. Maybe he doesn't get the credit he deserves for it, because you you think of him in comedy roles, but he is a very good serious actor in, in some pretty dark roles. One Hour Photo springs to mind as a role that, you know, is the furthest thing from being comedic, as to be said, and he, and he plays that role superbly. But uh, Denzel Washington got the nod. Um, it's featured in films, TV, theatre, and at the time of recording this episode... He has been nominated for 10 Academy Awards, winning twice uh, for his role in Glory, where he won Best Supporting Actor, and Training Day, where he won Best Actor. Two very good films there. And Jason Robards Jr. received a number of awards during his career, including two Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor for All the President's Men and Julia, which incidentally came in, in consecutive years. He also served in the Naval Service during World War II. And if I remember correctly, Andy... Tom Hanks won his Oscars in consecutive years as well, didn't he? He did indeed. He won Philadelphia, and then the following year, he won for Forrest Gump. Um, obviously, check out our Forrest Gump episode, which we released quite recently. Mary Steenburgen, very famous actress, and she also started a music career later in life. She has actually won Academy Award as well for Best Supported Actress for her role in Melvin and Howard. The role that I remember in, though, is the mum in Step Brothers. That's... Um, that's the one that stands stands in my mind. I've not seen that film, and I can't figure out. I've seen her in a lot of things because she she's got a very distinct voice, hasn't she? But I can't think of the film that's in the back of my mind. For some reason, I'm thinking a cowboy film, but I don't know. If I'm getting her confused with someone else. But Antonio Banderas has also featured in various films, television, and theatre productions. My earliest memory of Banderas, Andy, is from the Sylvester Stallone film Assassins, which I used to love as a a teenager, where he plays an assassin trying to kill Stallone's character. Not when I've seen that, so uh, that's uh, that's new to me. 
Uh, the director, Jonathan Dem, won an Academy Award for Best Director for The Silence of the Lambs. And Dem wasn't a prolific director, only directed films infrequently from the 90s. Uh, sadly, Jonathan Dem died in 2017 from cancer and heart disease. Now, there are some controversy with this film because the film features similar events to the real-life attorneys Jeffrey Bowers and Clarence Kane. Bowers sued the law firm for wrongful dismissal in one of their first AIDS discrimination cases. Yeah, Kane was fired by his employer when they found out he had AIDS. Uh, now, Kane sued his employer and won the case. The Bowers case was a lengthy case, and Bowers died two months after the hearings began, and his partner died a year later. Yeah, the case took more than six years to be resolved, with Bowers winning the case. However, the case was appealed, but later withdrawn after agreeing a settlement with the family. Bowers' family also sued the writers and producers of the film. They claimed that the film was based on Bowers' life. They stated that one of the producers came and interviewed the Bowers' family, and the family claimed that there are 54 scenes in the film that are very similar to events that occurred in the real life of Bowers. The lawsuit was settled a few years later, and although the details were not released, the writers and producers did acknowledge that the film was inspired in part by Bowers. So, yeah, a lot of legal wranglings in the background as well. So let's get into the film proper now. So the film starts with the drum beats from The Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen, and there's various clips featuring the streets of Philadelphia throughout. We, we see Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks sitting side by side talking to a judge, both stating the arguments for the case. Now, Hanks represents the powerful development organisation, whereas Washington is representing the residents in the affected area. Now, this is very much feels like David versus Goliath, which surprisingly, actually, Hanks is representing the Goliath in this situation. Yeah, in this early stage, I thought, is he playing a villain in this film? I don't remember him being villainous, but it, it came across in this short scene. But then... Following that, uh, Becker is seen working, but he's, he's at some type of clinic getting some treatment done. Clearly very dedicated to his job. And uh, there's a comment made, I think it's one of the doctors walked past and said uh, some comment about his blood work being fine. So I guess there's nothing to worry about, right? Indeed, yeah, because it doesn't explicitly mention it yet, does it? So Beckett's dedication is shown again as he's working late and he's eating some takeout, but he's summoned upstairs to meet the partners. Yeah, the note I made here was this was very much like old boys club mentality. Um, it's yeah, it just just that kind of old fashioned um, middle class old white men run things is um, about as stereotypical as it can get. Um, Beckett's got a promotion; he's been made one of the senior associates, and they're having a chat about this new profile case that he's got. And uh, one of the partners notices uh, what looks like a bruise or a lesion on Beckett's forehead. And Beckett kind of plays it down, doesn't he? Does he say it's um, a, tennis, it a tennis injury or something? He, he makes some comment. Like, tennis or squash, yeah, wasn't something it? Along yeah. those lines. So we have our first mini time jump. So there are a number of little time jumps um, throughout the film. So this jumps nine days later. Now, more lesions have appeared on Andrew, and Andrew is having some makeup applied to help hide them. Now, Andrew goes to the bathroom. He's experiencing a really painful stomach and then he says he needs to go to the hospital now at this point one of the people that's in the room with him makes a comment along the lines of oh it's just like my cousin fredo um so the people in the room clearly know what's wrong with andrew but it's not been explicitly said yet so the audience may or may not know i guess is is the, the point of the day you know there's something 
they know, but it's not been made clear to the audience yet. Yeah, indeed. So we have our second time jump, and this time it jumps one month later. And we see Miller is present for the birth of his daughter. He even takes a couple of selfies with his wife and newborn baby. Now, my wife, you know, she... Sorry, Andy, I haven't mentioned this. So when I fe- I've mentioned this in the past, but when we first started to watch this, the wife wasn't bothered about watching it. So I've told you before, you know, you could tell she's, she's getting ready for hibernation. She, she's laid down. She's got all the pillows around her blankets. So, but I just want to say she actually stayed awake for the whole film. So the wife made a comment here and she said, um, oh, typical that Joe's wife is helping Joe um, with the camera, having just gone through labor. So the wives are sticking up for themselves. For each other, should I say? I did think the same, to be honest. I mean, she's she's no. been she's been through an ordeal. <laughs> We're a week later, and we see Miller in his office uh, with a man in a sling. I've mentioned that my wife has this thin, you know, face blindness. Air quotes. So she made a comment here, and she said something like, "Oh, this film has got a really good cast." And I think, well, obviously, we've seen Denzel and Tom Hanks. So I said, "Like, oh, why? Why do you why do you say that?" And she said, well, that man sitting there, sitting there with the arm sling is Gerard Butler. And I was like, what? Gerard Butler? This film is like made in the 90s. Gerard Butler. I wonder how old he would have been then. Um, and then I just said, oh, the dreaded face blindness strikes again. But then when he started walking to the door, when Joe Miller like shows him out, she went, oh, yeah, yeah, that's not Gerard Butler. But it looks nothing like Gerard Butler. I cannot see the resemblance <laughs> in any way, <laughs> shape, or... I mean, I, I can't remember who the guy is, but I know it's not Gerard Butler or anyone remotely who looks like Gerard Butler. It's just a, um, I would say an older man, slightly over middle-aged, with a beard. And that is as close as Gerard Butler as you're going to get. Yeah, that's uh, that's a vague, um, a vague case of face blindness at best. Um now, Andrew comes into the office at this point and um, they have a conversation. He's you know, was obviously wanting to start a case with him. And Andrew tells Joe that he has AIDS. Now, now this was really quite... It was, just, it was a weird scene because Joe instantly moves away and, you know, they've just, they've just shaken hands, haven't they? And you can see he kind of, like, wipes his hand on his trousers. He's really nervous about being so close to him and having touched his hand. And then he sees Andrew pick up a cigar and put it back in the case. And he puts his hat down on some papers too. And, and all the while, Joe is just looking at all these these things. And you can tell there's, there's a fear setting in, isn't there? There is. And I don't think we've commented on the show notes, Andy. But you've obviously mentioned when the film came out in 93. But I don't recall seeing in the film any mention of what year the film took place. Do you? Because in the 80s is when HIV really hit, wasn't it? But it was still unknown. So I wonder whether, was this set in the 80s or was it set like in 93, for example? Because I think if it's in the 80s, it's still very much unknown, isn't it? And because obviously I'm going to talk about he goes to the doctor, doesn't he, soon? It would have been, yeah, it wasn't explicitly said, but I think even if it was based on the time, you know, early 90s, it's still quite fresh, isn't it? So I don't think there would have been enough time for things to have evolved to an extent. So there's still that. There's probably a knowledge, but there's still there's still trepidation, I guess, would be the polite way of 
saying it. Yeah, so Andrew informs Joe that he's been sacked and explains a bit about his case. However, Joe declines the case um, and he, he just admits it. He said he doesn't want it for personal reasons. So I've, I've just you know touched on this. So we see Joe now with his doctor and the doctor is educating Joe on how AIDS is spread between people and he's kind of giving him some reassurance that, you know, he, he's not being infected, for example. Um, he even, he gets a needle out to draw some blood, but Joe doesn't actually um, have any blood drawn. So later on, Joe is discussing things with his wife and he openly tells his wife that he's homophobic. Yeah, this scene was, it was very well acted, but it's one of those eye-opening scenes that kind of explains just what's going off. So I think it's actually his wife says to him, you're homophobic, and he admits as such, doesn't he? And um, he uses some very derogatory, discriminatory language. We're not going to repeat that for obvious reasons. Um, But it really sets the tone for what his view is and maybe what public opinion was, is or was in some quarters. I, in a weird way, I kind of think it was necessary to have that level of language just to really hit home the point of what what people's viewpoints are i think if you if you skirt around the issue it doesn't become quite so impactful so although of course we wouldn't approve or endorse that kind of language the fact that he is using it i think is important for the evolution of the film because you see just exactly what his real opinions are there's no there's no mistaking what his thoughts are you know there's there's no vagaries about it. it is this is his viewpoint and he is very clear about it in in a pretty nasty way has to be said um we get another short time jump two weeks later uh, joe is in a public li- library doing some research um and some bloke is staring at joe probably because he's black so you know discrimination works in many ways and he's he's on the receiving end of it whether he knows it or not um, we also see that Andrew is in there and he's researching his own case against his old employers. Uh, the librarian brings a book to Andrew and it confirms that it does indeed have a reference or pa- um, passage to HIV and AIDS. Yeah, and the librarian also makes a comment about using a private room instead. And people nearby seem visibly awkward too um, about the situation of finding out that Andrew has AIDS or you know potentially has AIDS they don't know for certain but you know that's the assumption they've made and Joe can see this happening and he walks over to Andrew and after a brief conversation Joe sits down and they talk now this is a very good scene because it it's highlighting to the audience the different prejudice that both characters are facing that Andy kind of touched on um, just a second ago it is indeed and um, it kind of begins their professional relationship at this point doesn't it so later on we're at a stadium, I think it's like watching the basketball, and uh, Joe serves a summons to Charles Wheeler and his partners. Uh, they're not happy, they go out into the corridor and have a bit of a conversation, and one of the partners, Bob, seems very reluctant, and he says something like, uh, where is your compassion? However, the others pressure him into saying that he knows nothing about Andrew's aid status. Then we have a scene where Andrew goes back to his childhood home to see his parents and family, and as Andrew's going there, he shows the handprints in a concrete that he made as a child and signed it as Andy. So my little comment, because obviously we've watched um, Woody, um, we've obviously watched Toy Story recently. So Woody has become Andy. I thought that was nice because 
obviously throughout the notes we've mentioned Andrew as Andrew, but this is a tie where you, he clearly sees that he references himself as Andy. I thought that's a nice little throwback to Toy Story there. It was a throw forward actually because of because of the release time, but yeah. So I wonder whether Toy Story got it from this film. But I thought my immediately thought of Toy Story as well. It's quite interesting. Uh, so we get another time jump, longest so far. We jump forward by seven months, and we're at the start of the court case, and the uh, counsellors, each each side's counsel. I got maybe using the wrong term, uh, but they kind of make their opening statements, don't they? And I think it's really being set up as it's legality versus morality. It is indeed, and also the time jumps help, doesn't it, with the deterioration in Andrew's health as well, so it doesn't happen overnight. It's over a course of months, potentially a year maybe when we get to the end, that you can see his deterioration um, on screen. Outside of the courthouse, we see protesters on both sides, some supporting Andrew, but also people against homosexuality. Now, one of the protesters approaches them and shouts, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Yeah, one of the witnesses in the case is a female with AIDS. Uh, She contracted it through a blood transfusion. So it's kind of coming across that that's not really the same thing, is it? And um, I believe she even makes a comment that um, she she doesn't see herself as any different to, to Andrew. But the way the... The way the court case is playing out and the way that she's being questioned and treated, they're, they're clearly treating her as a different case. Like, it's not her fault. Yeah, because one of the partners mentions that, doesn't he, later on, saying it wasn't her fault that she got it. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember which one it is, but one of the partners was. Later, we see Joe being approached by a student who's studying law at Penn State. Um, everything seems fine. He's got some compliments on how he's handling the case. But then the student tries to chat Joe up, and Joe doesn't take kindly to this. Now, Joe makes a few homophobic remarks to the student, and he leaves the shop. Now, the wife made a comment here, Andy, and she said it looked like Joe was shoplifting as he walked out because he hadn't paid for any items, and he, he had like a, a handful, didn't he? A handful, he was holding a few different items, I think for the baby, wasn't it, from memory? Yeah, he had a, a bunch of nappies under his arms, and uh, I thought the same thing. He, he made a right mess as well. There was like pills or bottles and stuff on the shelf that he made a mess of. Um, yeah, another another scene that kind of gives you an idea of what Joe's mindset is still at at this stage. You know, he's he's not really he's not really changed his his viewpoint as as things stand. Uh, later on, Andrew and Miguel are hosting a party, and Joe and his wife are invited, and they attend. And Joey's dressed as a lawsuit, which I thought was, you know, quite quite clever. But um, you can tell he's not really gone to as much effort as everyone else has at this party. And there's a distinct lack of enthusiasm, which is quite clear. Joe doesn't really want to be there, does he? It's the last place he really wants to be. I think, actually, thinking about it, and I know you're going to touch on it a little bit next, he's there because they're going to discuss the case afterwards. So I think it's... Um, Probably out of They were going through the Q&As, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that leads me to think that if they'd have done that on a different day, he probably wouldn't have attended the party at all. Yeah, indeed. But his wife did dress up, didn't she? I can't remember what she dressed up as, but she, she did partake in the dressing up. Now, this is my favourite scene of the film, and this is the opera scene um, with Andrew and Joe. So Tom Hanks is amazing here, but 
Also, Denzel Washington is really good because how he uses the silence to make it even more powerful. Now, this scene changes everything for Joe because, you know, we, we've mentioned about the, the different um, where Joe's coming from. And it's like the barriers have been broken down. And he also realizes that Andrew is more than just a client with AIDS who also is gay. Now, he sees like the human side of Andrew. And th this bit I like as well is where he, Joe goes back home and he hugs his family. And he covers everything from life, mortality and love. So this scene really hit me hard. It was really well done. And Andy, I actually listened to the music for this um, as part of typing up the notes on YouTube because I thought it was really well done. Yeah, beautiful scene. Really, really well acted. Um, I just thought it might be worth noting here that before kind of the opera music kicks in, they're, they are having a short exchange at the table where they're, where they're chatting. And Miller kind of explains a bit about his upbringing and his thoughts on what he calls alternative lifestyles. And I have to say, you know, I don't want to turn this into a political rant or anything, but it's a real shitty attitude to have. And um, upbringing is not really much of an excuse as far as I'm concerned. But I do wonder how common this sort of thing is. So, you know, people grow up, they're following their parents' footsteps, they follow their beliefs, their ideas etc you know whether that's political whether that's a you know views on racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever that may be but at some point the cycle needs to be broken um and i just think this is one of those this is one of those scenes where it shows that you need to break the cycle otherwise things will never improve definitely andy very deep um you see lots of stuff on social media about that don't you about um you don't be you know you're not born with hate are you that is um you see stuff don't you where you see kids playing of all different colors and there's there's no issues there so like you said it's very much um how they're being brought up with the parents and absolutely yeah their i mean attitudes I, d I don't like i said i don't want to turn this political or anything but you you see what's happening in the world today and it's just an easy excuse isn't it and it brings to mind uh, a phrase if you always do what you always did, then you'll always get what you always got. That we, we don't do quotes in season two. That was season one, but that was a, a very good quote we could have used, Andy, if we, if we did do quotes in season two. Well, not a quote from the film. That's just a quote from life. That indeed, indeed, yeah. So let's get back to the film. So Andrew is on the stand, and Tom Hanks is brilliant. So he's had some really good scenes now. And... The bit where Joe takes a mirror from the other lawyer and asks Andrew whether he has any other lesions. And Andrew then unbuttons his shirt to reveal numerous lesions across his torso. This was very powerful stuff. One of those scenes that when it first started, I recalled it, but I didn't remember before we started watching it. I'd, I'd not recalled this, but you're absolutely right. It is a very powerful scene. And uh, I have to say, Andrew does pretty well with the questioning from Miller. Um, but he starts to struggle when it's Belinda who's who's leading the charge. And uh, when Belinda's finished questioning, she returns to her seat. She mutters to the other people at the desk, I hate this case. It's She knows that what she's doing is not right, doesn't she? She does, yeah. And I wonder. I Well, I'm making the assumption that she works for the same company. So I don't know if that is the case. I don't think it's ever explicitly mentioned i'm just thinking you know andrew beckett was the the person who was basically promoted 
you know, he's on course, isn't he? On course to be a partner at one stage. I wonder if she's kind of like next in line, you know, the next bright um, young thing coming up. Or is she just recruited, you know, hired by a different law firm, you know, because they took it out outside of the organisation? I don't know. I don't think it's ever explained. No, I don't think. I, I assumed she was in in the same company, but yeah, I don't, I I don't know that to be true. So shortly afterwards, we see Andrew collapse while Charles Wheeler is on the stand. So Andrew, due to his condition, is no longer able to participate in court and he's bedridden in the hospital. Now, I would have actually liked to heard more from Wheeler on the stand, as strange as that may sound, because I, I wanted to know what his justification was or how he was going to try and worm his way out of it. You know, what, what exactly does he think he's doing in this scenario by firing Andrew? You know, how, how can he justify his position? Because... I'm not saying he's right because he's he's clearly not, but I would have liked to have understood how he was going to try and get out of it, and he never really explained it much, did he? He doesn't, and I've wondered whether, you know, the bit where um, Andrew collapses, and then I wondered when you know the the next scene would be Joe continuing to question Charles Wheeler and I was wondering whether Joe kind of antagonized Charles Wheeler and then he let slip and then that is what kind of swings the the case to Andrew's favor but no you're right it's like that's it he's collapsed and we don't see any more of Charles Wheeler on the stand I like your idea that would have been a very Hollywood way of doing things wouldn't it (laughs) but I suppose it goes against um Charles Wheeler being you know the seasoned professional he he probably never let um let his guard down would he no, that's true. And I guess you'd it'd be compared with uh, you can't handle the truth, that kind of yeah, saying, wouldn't yeah, it? I was thinking that in the idea. <laughs> so we see the jury reach a verdict and they award Andrew with some back pay, damages for pain and also suffering and punitive damages of four million dollars, which I believe me, me uh, which I believe means he gets around five million dollars in total. I was going to do some maths and I didn't, but I'm thinking it was it was five million plus. I'm pretty sure of that. I would have liked to have seen a bit more here as well from the jury. You know, a bit more around how they deliberated and made their decision. Um, could have been padded out a bit more. Just this this whole sequence seems quite abrupt to me. the The outcome is correct and it gets to the right point, but it just seems to you're just getting into it and then it's over. I agree. It, it definitely seemed washed. Because I thought, and if I remember this correctly, and I can't, I don't know what the technical term is, but you know where the jury talk about the case? You only have one scene, don't you, where they're talking behind doors. And I thought there was more of that, and it does seem, it does seem washed. It would have been nice to see them kind of deliberating in the back room before they made a decision. Because there is only one scene, isn't there? Uh, I think, and it's, yeah, yeah, you're right. And um, is it 11 out of the 12 jurors agree? I think there is one that, that disagrees. Yeah, there's one that doesn't, yeah. And I think having the context as to why that, that one juror disagreed might have been interesting to, to see as part of the film because it's never really explained, is it? It's just kind of the, there's that quick discussion and then we'll have, we have the verdict. So I'd have, I'd have liked to have seen that padded out a little bit more. 
Yeah, I just recalled something, which I just quickly checked my quiz because I wanted to make sure I didn't put it on my quiz. But did you notice something during when Andrew Beckett took to the stand and the, the um, I don't know if you call him a police officer, where, you know, the bloke that comes with the, the Bible and you put your hand on it. Did you notice anything about that? Um, nothing out of the ordinary that I can remember. So what happened was, because I thought it was weird and I googled this. So when the, the sheriff, police officer, um, did the Bible, he then left the room and then he came back in. But when he did it with Charles Wheeler, he stayed in the room, he did the Bible. And when you look on the internet, it actually says that the, the police officer was wearing plastic gloves. So, you know, he didn't touch Andrew. He went out of the room, took off his plastic gloves and came back in, whereas with Charles Wheeler, he never wore plastic gloves. So it's kind of like emphasising the, the whole HIV and AIDS thing. So even like the, the police officer was apprehensive about touching or being close to Andrew. Uh, so that kind of discrimination, apprehension, is in, is in the judicial system as well as just in Joe Public. Yeah, because there's a bit as well which we didn't discuss... Um, and I can't, it's very early on, you know, where the judge overrules or doesn't allow Denzel Washington to, to proceed with a question or something. Yeah. Denzel Washington yes. kind of looks and you think, oh, is it all going to be biased against him? But obviously that's not the case. Uh, yeah. And I vaguely remember the scene you're talking about. Yeah. There was, there was something about the judge at early doors that made me think he was a bit fishy. Um, but yeah, the case is over. The, the verdict is the correct one. Andrew has won the case. Joe goes to visit Andrew in the hospital. You see various family members and friends are there. And uh, you overhear the doctor telling Andrew's parents and Miguel that Andrew's actually gone blind in his right eye. Yeah, very sad. And Andrew tells Joe a, a joke. So he's, he's keeping lighthearted. And Joe then helps Andrew to put his oxygen mask on. And this is another sign that Joe has grown and, and he's come a long way during the film. Yeah, the uh, there is a bond there. I'm not sure if he, you know if he's all the way changed his views because I guess I guess that's always there. I don't know, but it does seem like there is a, a definite change in his demeanor and uh, mindset, isn't there? Um, we see Andrew's family members say goodnight to him, and uh, they'll see him tomorrow. Yeah, this was really emotional watching the film. Also, when we were typing up the notes, I was getting very emotional. And I think it didn't help that I was having Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young playing in the background when we were doing this. You know, there's there's a few scenes in this that, that really got to me. And this scene was one of them. And it's the line, Miguel, I'm ready. Because you know exactly what he means by that. And I, I just sobbed. I, I, I don't, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I just sobbed when I watched that it was so hard hitting and uh, I didn't write any more notes after that it was just such a sad part of the film yeah it is it is a very sad film and I think these type of films I obviously enjoyed it and we're going to see our rankings later but it does make it hard re-watching a film you know when you know it, it's very sad and the, the the subjects that it it discusses it's not one of those films where you think you, you watch it every year is it it just makes it very difficult yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, I don't, you know, it's not about us. I don't want to make it about us. But do you find that as a father, it hits you a bit differently? Yeah, because it was interesting because as as we were watching it, I was saying to the wife about, oh, you just, 
I don't know, you know, being a parent, you just think about things. And I, I said something to the missus about it must be horrible as a parent seeing your child go through stuff like that. So it does. Um, I think you can emphasize more, especially with me. I find that I'm more, um, I can m relate more when I've been through something myself or I can kind of put myself in that situation and that makes sense. I'm not someone that's naturally um, have like the empathy there. So I think, you know, if I was young and single or something like that and didn't have kids, it might have not hit me as hard, but being a parent and thinking, oh, you know, what would that be like if I was in that, you know, position as one of the parents and their, because I think, is he their youngest son? Because he looks the youngest in the video. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. It, I, it possibly he's is. one I'm, of the younger ones, yeah, not necessarily. He's, def not he's definitely older. got older siblings amongst them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what about you, Andy? Same question back to you as a dad. I think so, yeah. I think just generally I'm more emotional and in tune to these sort of things and just yeah obviously this this is this is more than just father and son there's there's all kinds of things at play here so i can't i can't fully relate to the exact situation but just the whole idea of the uh the sadness the and the discrimination part as well and the you know we're we're a couple of white middle-aged men we we tend not to get that much discrimination sent our way it has to be said we're um we're lucky in that regard but it just doesn't make sense to me why it exists and so when you see it I, although i can't i'm not in the shoes of people that that suffer this sort of thing i just I, I just despair as to why it ever happens and then things like this i would hate for for my son or a family member to go through everything that's talked about in this film you know whether it's not just the illness side of things but the discrimination the the derogatory language the, the isolation and then you know to top it off is this scene at the end where you know it's time for him to die and um it's yeah it just that that was it for me i just i lost it i just i just sobbed so andrew he dies during the night and miguel phones joe to tell him the sad news and then the film closes with the song by Neil Young, titled Philadelphia, playing over the wake of, of Andrew Beckett. We see Andrew's friends and family. They've gathered to say goodbye. And there's a TV set playing a home video of, of Beckett with his family. Yeah, this end scene really, was really well done, and it hit me hard, this one did. So um, the tissues... Um, well, I would say the tissues were out, but they, they weren't out, Andy, because... Um, the missus was laying next to me and <laughs> I call her the, the ice princess because nothing phases her whereas I always get tearful in a lot of films so yeah um, shall we move on yeah so that brings the film to an end so let's change tact a little bit and find out what our various wives various wives what our respective wives even thought of this jay <laughs> what did your missus make of philadelphia so she was pleasantly surprised actually because like i said earlier on this wasn't a film that she was really eager to watch and like i said she she was settled down ready to sleep while watching the film but she actually 
stayed awake and she was very engaged um, throughout the film so she enjoyed it and she, her one comment was that she found it ironic that what happened in real life with the Bowers and Kane cases was kind of what happened in the film <laughs> really so she did find that was quite ironic and this isn't usually her type of film that she usually watches is and just to put that in the context that a couple of nights before she watched this with me she went with our son to watch a new Fast and Furious film at the cinema and she goes every time it's like what you do Andy with your dad actually with James Bond she takes my um, our son to the cinema to watch a new Fast and Furious film so she likes kind of the I don't, I don't know this sound harsh but the kind of action films where you can kind of leave your brain at the door, go in, enjoy it, and then, you know, just go back out. That's the kind of film she likes. Or oh, like vampire films and stuff like that she likes. But she doesn't like watching films that are kind of like drama films or upsetting films. She likes to keep things a lot more light-hearted. What about you, Andy? Has your wife partaken in and watched Philadelphia? Yeah, so she's watched it with me in the past and she watched most of it with me this time. It was getting getting a little bit late, so she didn't stick around to the end. But uh, she didn't say a lot throughout, did get a little bit tearful. And uh, the only quote I got from her was, it's just so sad. And uh, I think that really sums it up, doesn't it? It does. Do you, so when you said you watched it about five years ago, did she watch it with you then? Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the two of us watched it together then. And... uh, it would have been emotional then as well. Yeah, it's not a, a date night film, is it? It's, it doesn't set the mood, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So that's our wives' opinions, but what are our opinions? So, Jay, what is your rating out of 10 for this? I gave it, so I was really close to giving it a 9, Andy, but I gave it an 8. And the reason why I didn't give it a 9 was... The, the point that you mentioned earlier, actually, about how the the verdict and Charles Wheeler bit was kind of um, very quick. And, you know, I think I said it was quite rushed. So it felt like the, the film was building up. You got all this, you know, building up to the case, um, getting all the case ready and Andrew and Joe working together. And then it just kind of came to a conclusion quite quickly. So... That, for me, was why I didn't give it nine. It was very close. It was very close. And I was really thinking about eight or nine. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, Forrest Gump, I gave it nine. And that's, like, near perfection. So I, I was trying to decide, you know, what, what kind of swung it between those two. And I thought, yeah, this this one felt like it was um, rushed at the end. What about you, Andy? Where did, well, how did you rank this one? Or should I say, how did you rate it out of ten? So this was a 9 for me, 9 out of 10, but my reasoning would be very similar to yours. I think it it could have been close to a 10, but it was rushed at the end, like you said. I guess if I'm playing devil's advocate, the maybe the reason it was rushed is because it was a pretty cut and dry case, wasn't it? There's not there's not real jeopardy in terms of which is the right way to go. I guess there's there's potential jeopardy in terms of which way the jury are gonna go because as you know, as we've discussed, the 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 discrimination that was prevalent at the time um could have influenced the jury into making what would have been clearly the wrong decision. But 
there was only ever going to be one decision and I'd have been I'd have been furious if it had gone the other way to be honest because there's only one right answer to this but but yeah the the way it played out it built it built and it built and then it just it fizzled out as opposed to get got to a crescendo but um, it was tremendously acted by Hanks and Washington and others really really good film enjoyable is the wrong word but it's a very very good film so uh, uh, 9 out of 10 for me I wonder, just thinking about that when you were talking, Andy, wonder the, I don't know what the, the correct terminology would be, whether the, the ending kind of symbolises your your pathway as a patient with AIDS, how it just, you know, you quickly deteriorate with the condition, and then that's it kind of thing. Could, could well be. I guess it's hard to sensationalise subject matter like this because it's... Um, Going going for a Hollywood ending, for lack of a better term, probably just isn't the right tone. But it would have it would have been nice to see more of the the machinations in the background. Yeah, definitely. So we've had my ratings and Andy ratings. So what do the people on IMDb think? So Philadelphia got a seven point seven out of ten on IMDb. Rotten Tomatoes, slightly more generous, 81% on the Tomatometer, certified fresh, with an 89% audience score. So we've got a seg- we've got an- another segment now, and this is called the Witch Tom. So if you've been listening to our other episodes in season two, you will know what this one's about. So I'm just going to add a little bit of context for any new listeners. So in this segment, me and Andy are pretending to be on the casting couch. Or should we say we're, we're pretending to be in the casting couch area we're actually casting um, another actor so we are recasting a tom hanks role with another famous tom so during season two we have the chance to cast either tom holland tom hiddleston tom cruise or tom hardy so jay who are you picking this week and why so andy i've picked tom holland tom hiddleston and Tom Hardy across our first three episodes. So it's probably only right that I picked Tom Cruise this week. Actually, Andy, I'm not going to pick Tom Cruise because I don't think Tom Cruise could necessarily play this role. So I'm actually going to pick Tom Hardy, and I just can't imagine Cruise playing Andrew Beckett. I just, I just can't see it. But I think Tom Hardy can deliver the emotional depth and physical changes as well because in, in his roles, he is really bulked up in certain roles, which obviously he won't be doing in this one. But you've seen in other films where he is a lot more, um, a smaller frame, a lot slimmer. So I think he would be someone that would would um, thrive in a role. And I know we, we can't do a non-Tom actor, but I'm just thinking, you know, actors that have changed... Physically a lot. Christian Bale would have been good as well, I think, with this role, because he's lost a lot of weight for some of the his films. What about you, Andy? Which Tom have you chosen this week? So I can't really imagine any of these Toms doing the role justice. But if you're going to force me to pick, I'm also going to go for Tom Hardy. And I think, like you, if he were to drop weight for the later scenes, I think that would be the physical transformation that would be the most shocking. But this is a role that, I think only Hanks can play. Yes, it's a brilliant bit of casting there. So, 
This next segment is another one we've introduced in season two. So this one is called The Six Degrees of James Bond. This is based on the concept that we are all connected to one another by only six degrees of separation. As we've discussed previously, in season one of The Rating Room, we rewatched and discussed all the official James Bond films. Therefore, in season two, we're going to explore how Tom Hanks is linked to the different actors in the James Bond films. So if you listen to season, if you listen to episodes one to three, we've already explored the Tom Hanks connections with Sir Sean Connery, Jules Lazenby and Sir Roger Moore. So today we are going to explore how Timothy Dalton is linked to Tom Hanks. So Andy, do you want to kick us off? Yep. Timothy Dalton was in Toy Story 3 with Tom Hanks. That means this week's Six Degrees of James Bond is completed in one degree. Well, Andy, that's um, that's very quick, that one. <laughs> very quick. So who did Timothy Dalton play in Toy Story 3? Uh, Dalton was Mr. Pricklepants. It was actually in Toy Story 3 and 4. So there you go. Oh, right. Okay. The hedgehog okay, character. Yeah. The hedgehog With the uh, lederhosen type outfit. Ah, right. Yes. Yes, I think... Did we touch on this one in the Timothy Dalton special episodes? That kind of rings a bell now. We did, yeah. We definitely discussed Prickle Pants. I remember Googling. Unless <laughs> unless that was just a nickname you'd call me. <laughs> I've heard it before, though. <laughs> Okay, so Andy, we need to make this a bit harder. So I'm going to restrict the film genres to action, adventure and comedy films only. So let's see how many times, how many degrees we have between Tom Hanks and Timothy Dalton now. Okay, I'll start us off. Timothy Dalton was in The Master of Ballantrae with Ed Bishop. Ed Bishop was in Brass Target with Edward Herman. Edward Herman was in The Man with One Red Shoe with Tom Hanks. So that means our second six degrees of James Bond for this week, we've completed in three degrees. Oh, some value for money there, isn't there? They get two lots. You, last, I know listeners, you know, some of this you will have to listen to our social media bits, but over the last few weeks you've been doing two lots of jokes, haven't you? Double the pleasure. Double the money. <laughs> what is double the money? What's double our income of zero? It's a bigger zero. <laughs> so let's get into our rank bank segment for the week we're going to run through various different ratings and rankings as we do every week and jay why don't you kick us off philadelphia had a runtime of two hours six minutes so that means it goes in at number two so Forrest Gump retains the number one spot with two hours, 22 minutes. Big is in third place with one hour, 44 minutes. And Toy Story is propping up the bottom with one hour, 21 minutes. Moving on to the box office. Philadelphia released in 1993, $26 million budget, $201 million worldwide box office, and an adjusted box office of million dollars puts it in third place out of four so far and that is third in terms of budget third in terms of worldwide box office and third in terms of adjusted box office so of the four films we've seen so far it's very linear the pattern that we've seen so far more budget equals more box office i wonder if that trend will continue it wasn't the case with james bond though was it andy absolutely not it was uh Depended on actor, depended on year, depended on all man- manner of things. But uh, it's nice and clean 
in the rankings so far for, for Hanks. Moving on, I'm going to kick us off with the Tom Hank characters. So as we mentioned throughout the film, Tom Hanks played Andrew Beckett. This one was hard. This one was very difficult for me. So in the end, I put Andrew Beckett in at number two. So Forrest Gump, again, stays at number one, where Tom Hanks obviously played Forrest Gump. And Andy, the rationale for this was Denzel Washington had pretty much the same screen time as Tom Hanks. Because I queried how come Tom, um, how come Denzel Washington didn't get an Oscar nomination for supporting actor? Because I thought he was very good. And I found an interesting article online where someone had counted the minutes. And apparently Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington had pretty much the same amount of screen time. There were only a few minutes in there. And I didn't realize this. But to be nominated for an, an Academy Award, you're um, basically the, the film company nominate you so they put you forward to the academy award so to increase the chance of one of the actors winning they didn't put denzel washington forward they just put tom hanks because they didn't want the chance of spitting the votes between you know two actors within one film so my rationale is forrest gump as you know tom hanks uh, as forrest gump appeared in more scenes throughout forrest gump so i think you get your value for money andrew beckett was a very good character um, and he's, he's in at number two. So that's the only reason why I've kept Forrest Gump at number one. But he, he's very good. And obviously this, as you mentioned, this was Tom Hanks' first Academy Award. And, you know, as, as we mentioned, he won it for Forrest Gump as well. So obviously it's be interesting to see if this is going to be one and two at the end of the, the podcast. You know, the two best roles um, are the ones that he got for an Academy Award for. But that's my rationale. What about you, Andy? Where did you rank? Andrew Beckett in your top four this week. So I would say Forrest Gump is a more memorable character, um, a certainly more famous character, but I think there's more depth to Andrew Beckett, and I think his portrayal was absolutely superb. And for that reason, I've got Andrew Beckett in as my number one Hanks character so far, above Forrest Gump, um, Josh Baskin in three, Woody in four, as things stand, just just for reference, but I thought um, really, really well played and fully deserving of the the Oscar win. Can't really argue there. Like you said, definitely more more depth um, and more emotional. Because Forrest Gump is um, is quite consistent. He doesn't have um, ups and downs as he really throughout that film. Where Andrew Beckett. Um, he obviously he, he declines as he, he deteriorates as he goes through the film. Yeah, there's yeah there's a little bit more to the Andrew Beckett character, as to be said. But let's talk about the supporting character. So you mentioned Denzel Washington, obviously plays Joe Miller. So he is our subject of the supporting actor ranking this week. For me, this was a slam dunk number one. Um, and to your point earlier about them being kind of level pegging, and in screen time they were. For 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 the most part, they were the two leading men, as opposed to one supporting the other for for a lot of it. But uh, I thought Denzel was tremendous in this, and I'm I'm really surprised. I'm, now you've explained it, I understand, but I still don't get it. He's deserving of the the very least the nomination because I thought he was superb. So straight in at number one, 
not even close. What about you? What was your thoughts on uh, on the Joe Miller character? I thought Denzel Washington was amazing in this film. Now, you said it wasn't even close. Again, I really struggled this week, Andy, with my rankings because I, I just struggled to separate Philadelphia from Forrest Gump. But with supporting actors, I had a different... Um, decision to make because when I think of Tom Hanks and if you I think if you you did that quiz show I think it's called Pointless and you talk to you know the people on the street and you say like name one person that Tom Hanks has appeared in a film with I think a lot of people will say um, like the Buzz Lightyear character I think that they're they're so iconic whereas um, not many people, well, I think a lot of people will, especially like film lovers, will uh, recall Denzel Washington's Joe Miller. But I don't think it's someone that you instantly think of um, playing alongside Tom Hanks. But I I struggle because I was really debating where to pull it between Buzz Lightyear and Jenny. Because obviously we, we discussed last week, didn't we, how good Robin Wright, well, not last week, but when we did Forrest Gump, how well played Jenny was by Robin Wright. So the 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 three characters. I mean, Elizabeth Perkins as Susan and Big was good, but for me, the three different supporting actors and characters for the last three weeks have been really difficult for me in terms of placing them. And you you can do an argument either way for any of these three, I think. But for me, um, Joe Miller was number two. So Denzel Washington is number two in my list. But again, this was really, really difficult. So in terms of film rankings, well, obviously me, me and Andy mentioned what we gave them at the beginning of the, well, not the beginning of the pod, um, not too long ago. So a quick recap, I gave Philadelphia eight out of 10. Now I've got a lot of eights in my top four at the moment. I'd be very intrigued to see if there's a deterioration in the scores because I'm, I'm struggling, Andy. So like, as always, we, we're not having any joint places. You know, we might have multiple eights or sevens or tens, but we've got to be really um, harsh here and actually slot everyone into a u- unique position. So for me, Philadelphia is the second best film that we've watched so far at the four. So Forrest Gump is at number one with nine. Philadelphia is two at eight. Um Sorry, number two is Philadelphia with eight. Number three is Toy Story with eight. And number four is Big with eight. It's a lot of eights, Andy. Whereas I was thinking about this, and I know we're only four episodes in, Andy, but with James Bond, we had quite a varied distribution, didn't we, <laughs> through the films. But I know we've got 25 films there. But when we were doing this, when I was looking at it, thinking, oh, no, I've done another eight. Surely they must either go down or up um, in the future. But what about you, Andy? So, position is the same. Comes in at second place. I give Philadelphia a 9 out of 10. Um, Forrest Gump remains top of the pile with a 10 out of 10. It's a, it's a fantastic film, is Philadelphia. And and I mentioned earlier, I can't use the word enjoyable because of the, the subject matter and the tone. But it's so brilliantly played. It's such a powerful film. Um, it's It's tremendous. Um, and it's a step above Big in third place with seven and Toy Story in fourth place with seven. Um, Forrest Gump and Philadelphia, for me, are head and shoulders above, but Forrest Gump 
retains top spot with the perfect score. Uh, So that brings us to the end of another episode of The Rating Room. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Yeah, so we love hearing from our listeners and encourage you to email us with any feedback, questions or suggestions you may have. Your input helps us to create better content and make this show more engaging for everyone. Don't hesitate to reach out to us at theratingroom at gmail.com and obviously we'll do our best to respond to every email that we receive. You can also contact us via our website and you can find all the show notes for all our episodes on our website at www.theratingroom.com. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at The Rating Room. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by following us on at The Rating Room. Send us a message, leave us a comment, drop us a like. And be sure to follow us and stay up to date with all the latest episodes, news and information. Next week, we're going down a different road. We've been to the past, we've been to the future, we've been down an animated road, we've been down many roads running, Um, but this time we're going to be going down a road to perdition. Thanks for listening everyone, we'll see you next week. Thank you.